Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 53. Luke 24, 36 to 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do ducks arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, 46, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is God's word. Thank you, Doris, for reading God's Word for us this morning, and thank you for joining us as we come to the end of this series that we have called Radical Dependence. I want you to know, and perhaps we've already mentioned this, that two years ago when the elders landed on this theme, we had no idea what was coming. None of us, not even one, had a word of knowledge. We just felt it was a good summary of Luke's message to his friend, Theophilus. And now we're looking back and we can see very clearly God's grace as he provided the very real illustration of COVID to remind us why we are in need of a God who proves himself to be faithful. That word radical doesn't mean cool, just to be clear. 
It means going back to the root. We want us to realize how dependent the first century church was on an intervening God full of grace and mercy. And I remember in December, we thought, wow, we were surprised that God was proving himself faithful. In a year when we had no plans to grow, we had no video outreach, it was not something that we thought was a good strategy. We welcomed 17 new members, and then of course, as you know, this past Easter weekend, we welcomed 24 new members, and this past Saturday, yesterday, 31 new folks registered for our Church Matters, our new members class. This is God's work. He works in such a way that no man or building or strategy can take glory that belongs to him. And so now, today, we come to the end of this passage, but not our desire to continually be radically dependent on this mighty God. As I recall it, it was likely my fault, as honestly most things are. This was many years ago. We didn't have three boys at that time. We only had two. Our oldest was six. Our younger was four. We were living in a small Canadian prairie town called Moose Jaw in the province of Saskatchewan, and we were restarting a church plant that had collapsed. And it was a Saturday, and Sherry had been busy in the kitchen all afternoon. Now, I think some of you know that Sherry has had this 41-year passion to hide vegetables on my plate, to cover them with sauce, to camo them in some way so that I would eat it and then be surprised it was tasty. And on this day, she was doing the same thing. It's important to train the child in the way he should go before he gets to the age of the father. And so she was sheltering herself in that kitchen preparing the most amazing dish of Brussels sprouts, which I accidentally had suggested to her. If you ever cook Brussels sprouts, I remember liking them when I was a boy. She had covered these with seasoning. She had roasted them. And so I spent all afternoon really getting our boys excited about this amazing dish that your mom is making. I ginned them up all afternoon saying, you just won't believe what your mom is making for dinner. It's going to be amazing. And so by the time dinner came and I called those boys, they came running, not walking. They were running. I could hear their little steps pounding as they came toward the dinner table. And then they saw it. I call it a grind. It's not, it's not really a word, or at least it's a word I'm, I made up, a, a groan and a whine. It's not really a word, it's the sound of a, a little boy's disappointed bum hitting the chair and pushing air out of his groaning, whining mouth. It's kind of like a, that's the sound of a grind. And our six-year-old had plopped himself down on that chair, arms crossed, little six-year-old legs swinging, and he said this, and I was like, buddy, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he said, I was not hoping for Brussels sprouts. What were you hoping for? Ice cream. Which is why we don't trust our six-year-olds to make dinner. Because what they want 
is not necessarily what they need. Last Sunday, Pastor Ollie introduced us to two disappointed disciples who, while they were on their way to somewhere else, full of disappointment, Jesus was suddenly there. They were full of grind, complained that this stranger walking with them was the only person in Jerusalem that didn't know all these disappointing things that had happened. In fact, in verse 21, they say, we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In fact, more than that, because Matthew chapter 19 reminds us, Jesus telling the 12 that those who will be faithfully following me will one day judge all of Israel on nine, or excuse me, on 12 thrones. So can you imagine those disciples going, wait a minute, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eleven, nine, twelve. Finally, someone realizes our leadership potential. One day, not only he will throw off the shackles of this foreign occupiers, but he will put us in charge. Our glory is there. And I wonder if you remember Ollie reminding us that when he was in the Ministry of Education, they send him for professional training. Ollie, I don't think you need it, but, but he was sent for professional training. And you remember that he was told professionals begin with the end in mind? Remember that? Which totally works if you have the right end in mind. The disciples and these disciples often start with the wrong end in mind. I'm sure you're not this way. But the end I start with is my own glory achieved by my own merit so that everyone would know, finally, even Canadians can be awesome. Because usually in the Olympics, we aim for the participation medal. Finally, God is going to make me awesome. If you begin with the wrong end in mind, life and Jesus will disappoint you. This morning, as we close the final chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to redirect us to a better, a newer, and more glorious end. He will move us from fear and disappointment to joyful worship and bold witness. So those of you who are looking in your app for the outline, here's where we're headed this morning. Christ was glorified in his resurrected flesh. He is glorified in our witness, and he is glorified in his ascension. Let's pray together. Father God, we just need you to help us in this moment to just press pause because many of us have had a difficult week. We are pressed hard in a work culture that feels sometimes oppressive. We feel no margin, so God, give us a holy moment with you and your word. We invite you to help us to hear with clarity, to move in our hearts so that we would respond in obedience. May we know, O oh God, that today we have been in the presence of the most high glorified God, King of creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first let's look together at verses 36 through 43. Christ glorified in his resurrected flesh. 
We can see in the first two verses of this text that they were talking about these things. Meaning what? Meaning the two disciples on the day of the resurrection had had this encounter with a stranger. He was different. And then when he broke bread in their home, suddenly they recognized this is the glorious resurrected Jesus. And then he was gone. And then the text said that very moment they packed up and returned to Jerusalem. They arrive at this place in this text. In verse 36 and 37, they have been telling the gathered disciples everything that they experienced when they were walking in another direction. They were talking about these things, and then Jesus himself stood among them. Luke intentionally using this reflexive pronoun, Jesus himself, to describe that awkward moment when you're talking about someone and suddenly you realize, whoa, they're in the room. And I was talking about them as if they were not here. And then Jesus, remember, he is creator God, from whom all things were created, for whom all things were created. He spoke it all into existence. And in this fearful group, that John's gospel tells us were behind locked doors. And, and by the way, so it's not just the 11. The two from Emmaus have joined them. And then in Acts, Luke reminds us that there was about 120 there, all huddled fearfully behind locked doors, and suddenly the God of peace is there speaking peace. And it wasn't enough. In response to the calming presence of the resurrected Jesus, verse 37, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Do you hear the extraordinary gospel truth about that? That means after three and a half years of sitting beneath the teaching of Jesus, after seeing him heal the sick and raise the dead, these disciples believed in Ghosts. And, and this is a gospel lesson to us. When difficult times happen, when there are seasons of challenge, we will always default to trusting in our fears. And so God in difficult grace allows us to have our fragile faith exposed to remind us that we are drifting away from the one who is most dependable in our lives. When difficult times come, we are just like those disciples. And the good news is, in the middle of our fears, Jesus is near. Those crises that expose our fears and our trust in them. And, and I get that some of you may be sitting here saying, hey, Pastor, I don't, I don't have those doubts. Then, then just wait a moment. Just, just hang on. Because life has not stopped happening to you. And if you live long enough, sooner or later, trouble will find out where you live and in those moments, when your faith is shaken, Jesus is near. That is the gospel according to Luke. And then in verses 38 through 40, Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? 
Why have you begun to trust your doubts? Why, why do they arise in your hearts? Verse 39, see my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Again, the use of a reflexive pronoun. It is me, myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Just feel it. Can you feel the rigidness of my bones beneath my flesh? I am alive. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Do you notice this? Jesus showed them so that both they and we could know that blind faith might have been a rock band in the 70s, but it is not an antidote to doubt. The antidote to doubt is this. Test me in this and see. Touch me and know. Know me and believe. And yet, even after that tactile, experiential knowledge, Jesus continues to observe this in them. Verses 41 and 43. While they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling. I have read that text about a hundred times, and it's so difficult to put those words together because they're in conflict. Disbelief, joy, wonder. You see, their hopes had so been crushed that, that these emotions, disbelief, joy, and wonder, were being tossed together all in the same emotional salad. They felt all of those emotions all at the same time, and sometimes when the day is dark... And grief is real, and disappointment saturates. You don't know what you feel. You can't describe it. And so Jesus proves himself some more. Do you have anything to eat? And they took him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it. Why does this prove? Because even those uneducated disciples know this. Ghosts, when they take a drink, the ground splashes wet. I know this because I've seen it on cartoons. A ghost cannot keep food. It just drops to the floor. But Jesus consumed that food. It entered into his resurrected stomach and stayed there. He was alive and real. He was glorified in a resurrected body. I guess these disciples realize suddenly it's easy to believe Jesus when he's feeding 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. It's easy to believe him when he's healing the sick and raising the dead. But in the most challenging times in life, the most difficult times, we need a God who is willing to prove himself. This is what Ollie was referencing last week. Doubts are not tragic. It's not a faith crisis. Why? Because your faith is not dependent on you. In the summer of 1877, Louisa Stead was enjoying a lovely summer picnic with her husband and her daughter. Life had been good. God had been good to her. She was married to a godly man who loved her desperately. God had blessed them with a precious nine-year-old daughter. 
And as they were enjoying the day, they suddenly heard a shout from the riverside. A little boy had fallen in. And her husband was the answer to every problem. The perfect husband. The Mary Poppins of husbands. And so he jumped up, ran down to the riverside, dove into the river. He was a strong swimmer. But the current was stronger. He struggled to save that little boy. And in the end, both the boy and that husband were lost. In the 19th century, it wasn't awesome for a mother to suddenly be a widow. She had no means of support. She had nothing. She grieved for a year. She was reliant on the loving care of her church family. And then in the winter of 1878, she wrote these words, a song bubbling up in her heart. I'm so glad I've learned to trust thee. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend, and I know that thou art with me and will be with me to the end. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Friends, I know this has been a difficult year for many of you. I know that some of you have lost significant income this year. Some of you are living with anxiety, wondering how long you can bear with your work. You're wondering what job options are available. I mean, some of you have lost even greater things. You've lost someone you've loved deeply, and you, you couldn't even grieve together with others celebrating the life of that one. Some, some of you have grandchildren. And it's been over a year since you've been able to hug them. Some others have birthed children who have never known the embrace of their grandparents. These are difficult days. And yet, Luke would have us remember, in difficult seasons, he himself draws near, learned to trust him, touch him and see, precious Jesus, Savior, friend, he is with you to the end. Second, Jesus is glorified in our witness. We can see this in verses 44 through 49. I've used this photo of a jury intently listening because as Pastor Eugene reminded us a couple of weeks ago, this word from which we get our English word witness comes from a secular Greek word that was used in the courts of law. When a witness was called to testify in court, he was called to testify in regard to what he or she had personally seen, heard, or experienced, and the word yes is that word martus or martyr. In verse 44, Jesus is saying, Remember, you were there, you were a witness when I said these things. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and prophets and the Psalms 
must be fulfilled. In other words, the very same Bible study that Jesus was giving to Cleopas and his unnamed friend on the way to somewhere else named Emmaus, he was now giving to this 120 fearful, huddled disciples. 48 Old Testament prophecies, the oldest of which had been written a hundred, sorry, 1,500 years before this huddled group of fearful disciples gathered behind locked doors. 48 Old Testament prophets or prophecies that all bore witness to evidence that Jesus was the awaited Messiah. What Jesus was doing was he was connecting the prophetic dots. I don't know, there's some of you who are as old as I am. We didn't have Netflix or movies, but we had connect the dots. Some of you remember that? I loved that. All I was doing was following the dots, and when I got done, boom, a picture suddenly appeared. I didn't expect it. There it is. This is what Jesus was doing for these disciples, connecting these prophetic dots, and when he was done, the perfect image of he himself. That means Jesus reminded them of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 when the prophet announced that the Messiah would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. They, remind, they were reminded of Isaiah 40 that said his coming would be preceded by a messenger. Zechariah 9 said he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. Psalm 41 predicted that he would be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah 11:12 said he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And verse 13, that that money would be thrown back into the temple. Isaiah 53, 5 predicted that his hands and feet would be pierced. And verse 7 predicted that he would be silent before his accusers. 48 prophecies, all perfectly fulfilled in the life of one carpenter's son named Jesus. Do you know someone has done the math on this? I assume it's a Chinese mathematician. Scientifically predicted the probability that all of these prophecies might be fulfilled in the life of one man. The probability is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's one followed by 157 zeros. There's not even a name for a number that big. In fact, do you know that the scientific threshold for the absurd is only 1 in 10 to the 50th power? That means, friend, if you're educated in scientific mathematic mind, it is impossible. The possibility that these prophecies were not about Jesus is not even imaginable. It, it means it would be insane to, to believe that Jesus was not the one predicted. But notice this. The one who created all things by the word of his power does not need science to prove him. Notice verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Luke is re-emphasizing an important theme in his gospel. It's a theme he highlighted also in verse 31 with Cleopas and his unnamed friend when he said their eyes were opened. You see, it's 
passive. It is something that happened to them and to us. This is why even Baptists need the ministry of His Spirit. We believe, but it's not because of our exegetical ministry skills. That does not bring us faith. It's not because we have this natural spiritual inclination. We do not. It's because the Spirit of Christ opens blind men's eyes. He opens our minds to understand the beauty of the gospel. It is his work in us that brings faith. And then he gives us the reason why we yet remain. I I mean, if we believe and the promise of heaven is ours now, why are we still here? Jesus gives the reason in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. You are to share and show that which you have seen and heard of me. This is what Ollie called the unadjusted and full gospel. We see it in verses 46 through 47, that Christ suffered for our sins, that on the cross he conquered both sin and death, that there is forgiveness in his name and salvation is found in no one else but in the God who proves himself. This, friends, is the assignment for every first century disciple and every 21st century disciple, sharing and showing the good news of Jesus Christ. And the one who opens our eyes, the one who blows open our minds to see and believe that he is God, is also the one who equips us for this work. Now, many of you who have been in GBC a long time, you know my story. You know that for 15 years, I ran from my call to full-time ministry. It's because when I looked in my mirror, it told me the truth. And the truth is, you have nothing. You're physically tongue-tied. You are dyslexic. You have trouble reading and remembering. You can't even stay on one topic Even the school knows you're disruptive. Your desk is out in the hall room. My mirror just simply told me the truth. But the truth is, it's not what I bring. It is about the God who lends me his spirit. And so in verse 49, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending this promise that my fa- the promise of my Father, the Spirit of the living God, stay until you are clothed with power from on high. Now notice two things about this. Notice he didn't say, stay until you've done the GBC ministry internship, then check to see if you're really gifted for ministry. He, he didn't say, stay until you've clothed yourself with a Bible school degree. And and more than this, secondly, he sends his spirit not so that we could have some ecstatic experience. 
Not, not so that we could steal his glory by platforming, platforming our, our awesome abilities. He sends his spirit for this reason. So we could clearly and powerfully share and show the good news of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how great your delivery is. His spirit comes so that his word would be clear and powerful and be received by those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. You don't have the power, nor do I, to raise the dead. Only his spirit does that. Empower and embolden to share and show this good news. And then finally... He is glorified in his ascension. If you're like me, you didn't really connect this well to the rest of the gospel message. If you're like me, you grew up in Singapore, in Sunday school, I didn't grow up in Singapore, and and you thought, oh, that's awesome, Jesus ascended into heaven. Wow, that's good for him, but we're just praying for something else. Resurrection. Verses 50 and 51. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed it, he parted and was carried up into heaven. Jesus' ascension gave those doubting disciples, full of fear, a clear and convincing picture of the right end to have in mind. This is resurrection. And that is why Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And our faith is in vain. And that's why he who had everything the first century society and culture could afford considered everything he had as loss. That's why he wrote to the Philippian church, I count everything as loss for the surpassing glory of knowing him and the power of what his resurrection that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain this resurrection from the dead. That means just like Jesus, there is coming an end for us who believe. No matter what condition that glory finds us in, maybe he finds me in bones, maybe he finds you in ashen dust, no matter what condition he finds us in, the one who spoke life into existence will reanimate us and lift us up. And so the priority of a Christ follower is not to pursue our best life now or here. But rather like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, this one thing I do, forgetting what was behind, all the rubbish, all the mistakes, all my dreams of vain glory, forgetting all of that, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of what? The upward call. God in Christ Jesus. Do you notice the radical change? Seeing the end goal made in these fearful, timid, running disciples. 
verses 52 and 53 says, And they worshipped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Do you see what the glory of God can wring out of a timid, doubting disciple? From doubters to believers, from believers to worshipers, from hiding from the gaze of religious leaders to celebrating his glory in the very hive of religious hostility. That's what this wrought in them and will bring in us. I, I, I wonder if your joy, if our joy, is so authentic that we too would dare celebrate his glory in the presence of his enemies. That's what was happening in the temple every single day. In front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of those who sought to have Jesus killed, suddenly his followers had no fear but celebrating, he is alive, he's alive indeed. As some of you may remember, Eugene reminded us, this is what convinced the president's hatchet man, Chuck Colson. This is what convinced him that Christ was indeed alive. This his original booking photo when he was hauled in and charged with obstruction of justice. When he was sent to prison, he wrote this. These disciples were beaten and tortured and stoned and put in prison. Yet they would not deny what was true. They wouldn't have endured it if it wasn't true. You're telling me that the apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. Look at us. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and we couldn't keep alive for three weeks. This is an image of 15 women who endured because it was true. 15 women for whom no sacrifice was too great for the surpassing glory of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I wish we had time to celebrate the faithful witness of every one of these disciples. But this, just one. Her name was Felicitas. Felicitas is Latin for happy. Felicitas is pictured here in this print with seven heads belonging to her sons who along with her were martyred in Rome in the year 162. Her fruitful gospel witness, joyfully sharing what she knew to be true about Jesus, was noticed by the pagan priests in Rome who made a formal complaint to the emperor Lucius Verus. With each child she was forced to watch. They slaughtered them and gave her an opportunity to deny Christ. Recount your witness. And seven times she refused and then was killed. And so I'm left wondering, 
Has my fruitful gospel witness even been noticed in McPherson? Is, is there anyone in our world who has been shown and told the good news of Jesus Christ? In, in, in fact, if we were suddenly gone, if, if this building collapsed into rubble, would our neighbors miss us? Would they notice? Am I like Paul? Pursuing any means possible to attain the upward calling of God in Christ. Eugene reminded us a couple of weeks ago, Luke wrote this gospel, these 24 chapters, just for one friend, the most excellent Theophilus, just so this one man, not a Jew, a pagan Greek, could know and have certainty about Jesus. And now he closes the book, and we're left asking, is there anyone who today has certainty about Jesus because we yet draw breath on this island? As we reflect on this for just a moment, can I ask you to what end are you following Jesus? Or are you asking him for all the same things you asked your old God? Have you just been transactional? Lord, help me get this job. Help me keep this job. Help me do well. What are you hoping to gain? Have you landed on the right end? Is that what consumes every thought? And you heard it earlier as we began. What obligation do we feel? Any? To glorify him in what we say? In our gospel behaviors? What specific adjustments will we make this week in order to faithfully pursue God's glory in this nation? I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. I think it's possible that many of you are just like me. You've been in church a long time. In fact, you've begun to measure your depth as a disciple in Christ by the length of time you have spent in church. You've begun to measure your faithfulness by the good things that you do. I wonder if Luke has given you, like he has given me, some clarity, some realization of the incremental drifting away from dependence on all he would do in us and everything we are doing for him. If you're like me, Aren't you tired 
Aren't you weary of trying to do everything humanly possible to please him? When his only desire is rest in me. He is near, friend. If you would turn afresh to him today and say, all of you, Jesus, none of me, just, just fill me afresh with your presence. Not so that I can be better, but so that I could more better represent you in my daily speech and in my behaviors. That I might share and show the beauty of your gospel. He is near. He himself is here. And, and maybe you're here and, you know, a friend invited you. You didn't really know how to say no. And maybe you've never, ever surrendered, not to changing your religion, but to embracing this living God who spoke all things into existence. For whom all belongs and this is a moment that you could be reminded that while you, friend, were on your way to somewhere else, he pursued you and he is here now. Do you need to turn to him and say, oh, my Lord and my God, prove yourself to me. I want to trust you, but my faith is frail. Help my unbelief. Father God, I thank you that you are still the one who pursues us while we are pursuing someone else. You follow us, chase us down like a hound from heaven. And now that you yourself are here, oh God, we realize there's no place we could go to escape from your presence. Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy. We thank you for this season of COVID that has taught us that all the infrastructure of support that we have built around us is fragile and cannot save. So God, as you have drawn near, we come to you. Precious Savior, Jesus Lord, we desire to trust in him. Open our minds that we might know the beauty of the gospel. Open our eyes so that blind men and women can see you as you truly are. Do this for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.